Okay, well, welcome to um, our next to last uh, Sunday school of the winter quarter. Uh, I feel that same way. I've had a ball uh, with this topic. Uh, we've been looking at the discussion <clears throat> surrounding what uh, the theologians refer to as the Ordo Salutis, or the order of Christian salvation. Um, and we've plowed through uh, just all kinds of topics, uh, beginning with union with Christ and this idea of being united to him as the center of all, uh, the whole uh, uh, order. Uh, election, found out that our salvation was thought of by God even before we were born or ever did anything. Uh, we talked about calling and regeneration, how the Spirit comes and moves in on someone and takes someone who is dead and makes them alive. Uh, then we talked about conversion, which is what happens in us after someone is born again. Uh, that there's, a, there's an act of repentance, an act of faith. Spent a lot of time talking about that. Then we moved on to that great topic, justification by grace through faith. Uh, what John Calvin said was the real cornerstone uh, of, of the church. Uh, we then spent the last couple of weeks in the topic of adoption and how important it is in our uh, uh, theological circles to know that what God does in our salvation is not just a legal declarative act, but it's also a familial, uh, warm, uh, uh, joyous act that comes in, in family terms to us. Well, today we come to the topic uh, of sanctification. Uh, sanctification uh, is simply that idea that what is begun in us, that good work that is begun in us, God is going to move on to completion. He's going to take the beginning of our salvation and move it into, um, into an absolute transformation of his people. That's what sanctification really basically means. And so I always struggle how to sort of start these particular conversations, but I thought I would take this one uh, on entertaining this question uh, this morning. I don't think that there are more, that there's a more prominent question that I feel like I've been uh, posed to me as a minister than this question right here. How do I change? Um, I, I've told many of you before that I, I work for uh, our, this church's denomination. Uh, Christ Presbyterian Church belongs to the denomination known as the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA for short. You see us throw around that lingo, and it's always good for us to define what those lingos are. But we're part of a denomination. And in my particular position as a, as a denominational bureaucrat, on behalf of college students, um, I get a chance to pick up what you might refer to as like denominational uh, 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 controversies or politics sometimes. Uh, and I have to tell you that in the last few years, there has been something of a discussion that has arisen uh, around a certain, uh, I think at this point it's risen to the level of a vocal minority uh, in our church who is very concerned that we are missing something important in our discussion of the topic we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, and their concern is that there are those who are talking about the grace of God as it comes to us in the gospel uh, as being sort of an end point in itself. And that there is, it is possible for someone to have had an experience of God's grace working in them in some respect, but there not really be any transformation of life after that fact. Does that make sense? What's interesting is this topic came up when I was in college in the late 1980s. In the 1980s, there was a guy named John MacArthur who published a book that at the time was hugely controversial called The Gospel According to Jesus. And it basically uh, centered around this very question. Can someone have Jesus as their savior, to speak in the common parlance, but not have Jesus as their Lord, or maybe make Jesus Lord of their life sometime later on in their Christian life. People talk this way. Well, you know, I became a Christian and asked Jesus in my heart when I was in the third grade with my mom and dad. But it really wasn't until college when I made him the Lord of my heart, made him the Lord of my life. And MacArthur was really taking on this particular controversy and was saying, no, the Bible really doesn't teach that. Anytime Jesus shows up, he affects transformation. Well, again, as I, as I travel the Southland <laughs> uh, in my car, uh, and that is exactly what I do. What do you do, Les? I travel the Southland. Um, I, I will go ahead and go on record, uh, on recording, and say that I believe that the recent dust-up in our denominational conversation 
about this whole topic of change um, is largely uh, overblown. I've been looking for someone who thinks that there is no need for transformation after God's grace comes and moves in the life, and I can't find them. I do think that oftentimes what this controversy, though, is revealing is, is very oftentimes we don't understand the basic structure of how God is going to transform his people. Uh, And there's no doubt that a lot of times those concerns are directed at our denomination's sort of primary leadership conduit in our denomination, which is our official campus ministry called Reformed University Fellowship, the organization for which I serve. And so I would simply say, in, 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 in public, <laughs> on rec- record, as saying that for the next generation, not only are they not concerned about the effects that God's grace would have, in, not only are they not not concerned for the effects that God's grace will have in them, but I would say they are preoccupied with the question. There's no greater question that, that we are posed with as in campus ministry than I am tired of how I am. How do I change? And there's a unique Christian answer to that that I personally wish the conversation would shift to. Hence my lesson this morning. I'm hoping us to go in a, in a direction uh, which perhaps we've not gone at this point. Because the problem is there's a lot of different answers that people will give to the, to the question of how do I change. Keller says there's three ways people look at it. First of all, there's the mechanical view. The mechanical view basically says here's a five-step program to, becoming, to having a better prayer life. Three easy steps to overcoming uh, 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 temptation in your life. The mechanistic view sort of looks at us in way too simplistic a way. It's almost as if it's the theology of the self-help section of the bookstore, or perhaps the theology of the, of the, uh, the, the uh, checkout stand magazines, right? Love to look at those. Secondly, there's the moralistic view, and this is just the idea, if I just applied myself to the rules more judiciously, uh, with greater uh, willpower, then I would change my life. If I could find a way to remind myself of these principles on a regular basis, then the rules themselves will transform me, right? This is the one that preachers fall into. When a preacher gets sort of irritated at his congregation, yes, that happens, they oftentimes will find themselves getting up and wanting to kind of take out their own frustrations at either your lack of holiness or their lack of holiness, and sort of they become very aggressive in their preaching. Uh, they become mean-spirited. I had a, a great sort of mentor in my life say, Les, you've got to be careful because you can't preach while you're mad. That's some good advice there for you would-be uh, teacher preachers out there. The final view is what Keller calls the mystical view. The mystical view is this idea that we're waiting for God in this sort of magic kind of way, that if you just, if you just let go and let God, of all the worst possible phrases for our culture to have produced, that one's near the top. You just need to let go and let God. First of all, what does that mean? No one knows. It's a group of words together that sound meaningful, but they're just not. Second of all, the idea behind it is, is that God is going to do something for me and in me that will happen for me without any real effort. It'll be effortless. I'm just waiting on this thing to, work, to move on me. But that's not true. The Bible never projects that kind of thing. Look, and so, so look back over your journey this morning and your attempts to change. How's it going? <laughs> and hold that thought for a second because I don't think I'm going to answer that in the way you think I'm going to answer, uh, uh, um, answer that. Because the Bible understands you perhaps even more than you might even know. Uh, it talks about change all the time. As a matter of fact, you could do well to sum up the entire teaching of the Bible. This is fun to like put the Bible in one sentence. <laughs> As God's plan to fix the world. That's what the Bible is about. Ruined by sin, affected by the destruction that comes from rebellion against him, God has set forth a series of events that, by the way, will be experienced the most acutely by you in your transformation and then looking to see that thing expand throughout every single corner of life, the advance of the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says the kingdom of God. It's talking about fixing the world. So what's happening? Real change. How do I get to real change? I love to t- it was fun to talk to college students about this, and I'm getting a little bitty taste of this again 
uh, in my little, uh, side, a little side job uh, of helping out with RUF here at Old Miss while we don't have a campus minister. And uh, it's always fun to talk to people about relationships, especially in the midst of a breakup. Now, I know that's sadistic because you're like, I'm sure it's fun for you there, preacher man. Fun in the sense that it's so, oftentimes it falls out in such clear patterns. You know, there'll be a couple that'll, that'll break up. And it, let's say the girl broke up with the guy because for whatever reason he had lost his focus, maybe he had become clingy or possessive or whatever, and, and then the, sort of they end the relationship. And she comes along and says, I'm done, I want out. And suddenly he starts to make all these promises. <gasps> no, 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 don't you understand? I'll do better, I'll change. And she, for whatever reason, is kind of, melted in her view of his, his contrition. And so they get back together. They sort of try to reunite. <laughs> I've described it as like, well, the milk is spoiled today, so let's just put it back in the refrigerator, and maybe tomorrow it'll be better. <clears throat> um, but they get back together again, and all of a sudden he changes. But what happens? Over time, the, the, the sort of freshness of it sort of wears off, and he falls back into the same old patterns. What's going on there? What it meant was is that the change in that young man's behavior was only affected, as it were, by an outside coercion. That is, the only reason why he was changing was because of the fear placed in his life that she was going to leave. But once that fear was gone, what happened to his habits? They began to drift. Well, here's the point. Jesus wants to come in and affect a change in your life that is not exacted by outside external forces, but rather through an internal dynamic that gets on the inside of a person. Here's how he says it in John 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, including change these things about your life that you don't like. Jesus comes along and says, that we're looking for to find a path to the real you. What is the path to a real you? Well, that's what I want to talk about. This is going to sound like the mechanistic view, but it's really not. But I want to throw out six ideas. <laughs> You're going, he doesn't know what, what the time is. I do know what the time is. <laughs> Number one, we have to understand the importance of knowing you. We have to own the disaster that is you. I know that's not that flattering. Bear with me. We have to uncover the allegiances that dominate you. We have to starve the distractions that try to define you. We have to drill down the features of the new you. And then finally, we have to clothe ourselves in the glory of the one who knows you. Okay? So that's the path we're headed to. First of all, we have to understand the importance of knowing you. And because I've spent so much time on this already, I'm not going to belabor it much more again. But I want you to remember the drawing we dealt with when we were talking about the idea of faith. Namely, how the entirety, the Bible views you and the way in which you function in terms of this thing called your heart, from which radiate, according to Proverbs 4.23, all of the issues of your life. That is, your choices come from your heart. Your intellect, your thoughts ought to come from your heart. By the way, this is a very interesting lesson on the scientific worldview. There is a critique of the scientific worldview in this mere drawing because we are saying that there are times in which human beings can even twist facts, that the facts do not speak for themselves because they're generated from a heart that refuses to believe. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I sort of stumbled across a... Um, a um, um, a, a, bi a biography, sort of a little documentary on Warren Buffett, one of the richest men alive today. And it's fascinating to hear this nerdy little man talk because he kept saying, look, the business is not complicated. Business is just business. Anybody can figure that out. You can read that in a book. Where it gets complicated is the human element. I think he's reflecting some real wisdom from the Christian worldview at that point. That is, there's a human element in the heart. And then there's this emotional life that extends from the nature of the heart. All things radiating from that. So here's my point. If there's ever going to be real change, if there's ever going to be real transformation in the life, it's going to extend from this place. And what is that place? Well, Jesus tells us in places like Luke 12, 34, 
where he says, look, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is, you'll know what your heart is by looking at your beauties, the things that you find beautiful, by looking at your allegiances, the things that you've, you've pledged your, your, your life to, by looking at where your money is spent. Your money goes to those things to serve those things that really define you. So if you're going to understand the me, you, then you have to hear the way the Bible talks about you. <laughs> Tim Keller once tweeted it this way. Look how relevant this sermon is. There's tweets in it, for Pete's sake. I love this. This is really... <clears throat> you, need to, you, need to, you need to retweet this. <laughs> he says, What the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and the will carries out. Everything follows the heart. If real change is going to happen, it has to begin there. Listen to that again. What the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and the will carries out. Everything follows the heart. If real change is going to happen, it has to begin there. So therefore, your heart is this place that longs for a beauty. I hope that sets us on a proper path. Because now you're asking the right question about how you change. You change when that center of you is transformed into something better than whatever it is you've locked on now. That's the real challenge of the Bible. The Bible is saying whatever allegiances you have pledged yourself to will in the end burn you. They won't give you that thing that you're looking for. But rather there's a message that he says that, that in the, from the Bible that will actually transform you and really give you what you've really longed for, real and true change. We could talk about Proverbs 4.23, and uh, uh, for above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows all of the issues of life. Uh, we could spend some time talking about Ephesians 1.18, that, that, that Paul prays that our heart will be enlightened so that we may know the hope that God has called us to. We find that even our emotional life in Romans 9.2, when Paul says that he has great anguish in his heart for his unbelieving fellow Jews. And finally, Romans 6, 27, he says that he's thankful that his readers have been obedient from the heart. By the way, that's the whole discussion of the book of Romans, by the way, as we know, since we just got finished studying it. Remember how Kurt talked about the obedience of faith and that the whole book, is, the whole book of Romans is bookended by that object? In other words, the question of obedience is not on the table of the book of Romans. It's a peculiar kind of obedience. That is the obedience of faith. The obedience that comes from faith, which is a completely different kind of obedience that people are used to hearing about. What does he mean? It means he had a theology of the heart. Okay, so understanding you is the big first aspect. But number two, we have to own the disaster of you. You see that guy? He thinks he's a disaster. That's why he's sitting in the corner. <laughs> Come on, that's a little funnier than that. Bear with me here. <laughs> Look, I want you to imagine the doctor who continues to prescribe medication to someone for a patient who suffers an ailment. But with every visit, the patient refuses to take the medicine. Why? Because the patient's not convinced that they need it. Ever got along with somebody like that? I don't know. I just, it just seemed like I would love to be a doctor sometime. It's completely false. I would not love to be a doctor. I'm just part this morning. But I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for a doctor if someone walks up and is like, I don't know, those pills... I don't know, they just look like they were a little, too, a little too powerful for me. And as a doctor, you're like, huh, well, I'm so glad. I've got this eight-year degree up here on the wall that says otherwise, but hey, that's cool. Knock yourself out there, opinion boy. It's kind of like, like the way people who have uh, masters of divinity listen to you when you say, well, you know what, I just don't like to think about God that way. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> I appreciate that little insight into your character. But that's silly. I mean, a guy looks and says, I'm a doctor. You know, I've actually been to medical school. I see the point here. If the patient is not convinced that they need the remedy to the problem, then they're not going to take the medicine, right? And so before any kind of healing can take place, an owning has to take place. You have to own something. And so John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, uh, spoke in a letter that he, the, uh, the, uh, uh, one time uh, uh, of his life before he was a Christian where he was an English slave trader. Actually, um, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, 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 before his conversion, was in the, in the English slave trade. And at one point, he makes this little line about his pre-conversion -day, pre days, 
and he said, he said, custom and example and interest had blinded my eyes. Think about that for a second. Custom. Well, this is how I've always done it. Example. Well, see those people over there? They're doing it too. Interest. This is just who I am. You're going to have to live with it. Those things Newton said on the other side of his conversation had blinded him. By the way, those things can blind a church too, by the way. Custom, example, and interest. (laughs) This is the way we've always done it. Uh, Example. Well, this is the way you know who is doing it. And interest. Well, this is just, that's just not what we're into. It can blind church even, by the way. Small little throw in there. No, but actually the Bible says that if you begin to look at, at yourself through God's point of view, you get descriptions like this in Romans 3. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I know that's not a pretty picture, but I would dare say that if you did a quick survey of the last 100 years of human history, you would say that that would have to comport with reality. (laughs) Comes pretty close, I think, right? Finally, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that he commends the church for their genuine repentance. And I won't sort of, uh, 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 sort of rehearse that same discussion, but that's a fascinating talk, the difference between repentance and remorse. You know, remorse is that feeling that we get because we've gotten caught, because we, we, just, we feel wrong. And what Paul says is it leads to death. And not death in the sense of like you're going to go to hell when you die. It's not the death he's talking about. He's talking about the death of soul that says all that remorse will do is aggravate the problem. But there's this thing called repentance, and it's repentance unto life, the confession says. It's a repentance that actually brings real life. What does that look like? Well, it happens when the heart changes. So there's only the disaster of you. Thirdly, we have to uncover the allegiances of you. Uncover the allegiance of you. Look, remember how you function There is an allegiance center inside of you at the core of all human beings that causes you to lock on to a power center or a comfort. Now, man's original design was was that God alone occupy that particular place in the heart. In in other words, the Ten Commandments are often listed, you can think of, are listed in terms of their priority. What's the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, that's the, most, that's the one where it all begins. And so the Bible is saying is, you, you are who you are because you are a worshiping creature. This is a fascinating concept. Because unfortunately, most of us think of worship exclusively in terms of what we're about to do here in about 45 minutes. That is, that's worship. We can get together and go to church. But you know what? You're actually worshiping all the time, at least in the Bible's calculus. That is, you are finding a passion a thing that defines you, a thing that you want to have. It could be anything from the joy of human relationship. It could be something to a career that you want to have, be a millionaire by the time I'm 30 or something. For others of you, it's an idea of freedom, that I can just be sort of free of all these constraints and do what I want to do. The heart is, your life is determined by what you bow down and worship. The Bible says you're worshiping all the time. You don't even have to be a religious person to be a worshiper. Again, we were built to have that space only filled by God, the Bible suggests. But what happens is, is mankind in the Garden of Eden decided that he would pull himself out of alignment with that allegiance and go after other things. And so therefore, one of the best ways to understand your life or actually understand the life of others is by asking them the question, what are you after? What, what, is, what is igniting your soul? What, what, what is lighting you up on the inside these days? Because man is a worshiper willy-nilly. He will attach himself instead of the creator to the created things. You think of it like a fish. <laughs> Use this example before. You know, if a fish all of a sudden decides that he really wants to be free in his life, honestly, I'm just tired of all these constraints. I want to be free. And so therefore the fish is convinced that the water is his problem. If I could just get out of this water, 
my life would be great. And so in one great sort of brave moment, the fish kind of pushes himself up out of the water and onto the sandy beach. What does he find while he's there? He finds that he can't breathe. He finds that the sun is hot and painful. And he finds that the sand is coarse and rough to his skin. And what he finds is that the pursuit of his freedom was actually something that robbed him of his freedom. You want to know why? Because he was built for the water. And if you're built for the water, you're only happiest. You're only thriving when you're in the water. And so God oftentimes goes to his people and he says, why would you die? Why would you die? <laughs> what, 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 what is the course that has caused you to long for the very thing that will actually destroy you? There's a sickness to it. And therefore, uncovering our allegiances is like figuring out what it means to be a fish back in the water. Look, all these things that we have oftentimes referred to as simply being the way that I am. You know, my personality. That's just the way that I am. I would argue, frankly, came from a time in your life where you decided what was going to make life work for you. That is, there were things that you pledged yourself to that began to define what you were going to be. That's what your personality is. Those kinds of allegiances that we have. Wow, that's a big one. We could spend a lot more time on that one. But the Bible goes on much more to that, and it talks about needing to starve the distractions uh, that define you. The Bible actually uses a word for this, or at least theologians have used uh, a word for this. Mortification. To mortify something just simply means to put it to death. So in Romans 8.14, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's what we've just been talking about. If I live according to the flesh, if I allow my fleshful life, fleshy life, to lead me into the rebellion that God has defined, I will die. But if by the Spirit you, here's the phrase, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul sees change in life as a process of putting sin to death. In other words, idols, these things that we talked about making, these false allegiance, allegiances, they're so powerful that eventually they take on a life of their own. <laughs> It becomes this thing that almost in your life feels like a living, breathing thing. Ugh, can't get rid of that thing. I can't, I can't get the monkey off my back, we say. What, what does it feel like? It's got its own allegiance. And so the Bible says, you're right. It does take on a life of its own, okay? So kill it. Some violent metaphors going on this morning, so bear with me. Um, look, this is a huge deal here. Um, Brian Habig, my very good friend uh, who's pastor of downtown Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, has a great sermon on, on Romans 6, uh, uh, where he basically makes this little quick point. He says, look, narrative drives lifestyle. That's his little optif, operative phrase. And what he means is, is that the story that you're believing about yourself in any given moment is the key to explaining why you do what you do. Therefore, if, to talk about change means that you have to alter the storyline of your life. And so when you struggle with sin, he says, are you a new me who is doing the fighting? Or are you the old me who you're frantically trying to overcome? He says this is absolutely fundamental to any success of mortifying sin. To say, am I the new me who is trying to wrestle against this? Or am I still the old me trying to get out from under this? Let me put it this way. We love to give these little pithy phrases. Are you struggling to be free from sin? Or are you free to struggle with sin? And what Habig says is, is that's the difference between the Christian view of sanctification and every other world religion that exists. Change in the Bible's estimation is so certain because God talks about in certain places stuff that has already happened. This is crazy. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this, but you were washed. Listen to this. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of your God. Did you notice the verbs there? You were washed. You were sanctified. <laughs> what, what is Paul saying? He's saying that I need you to learn how to talk about the new you. And your transformation is so certain that I'm even going to describe your, your efforts towards holiness as if it's in the past tense. Now if you really, for those of you budding theologues out there, if you really want to go diving into this this afternoon, as I'm sure you do each and every Sunday, um, 
This is something that we call definitive sanctification. That is, there is a sense in which all sanctification is progressive. It goes along over time, right? But there's another sense in which the Bible talks of it as being definitive, as having happened in a point in time. Look for a guy named John Murray to unpack this in a beautiful way. But what does it mean? How can I have already been sanctified less because this was a bad week for me? (laughs) I didn't have such a good month. How can they talk about me as already being sanctified? Because the Bible understands you. Because it's given you a new you. And Paul says, look, now you can sort of talk about that as being killed. He'll even look and say that when Jesus died on the cross, you were crucified with him. At least your flesh was. That is, the old me died then. I've got a brand new story. It used to be that I was simply just sort of scratching and clawing and sort of wrestling at it, hoping that maybe I'll get holy enough to feel like God likes me. You feel like anybody struggled towards sanctification? But Paul says you're not going to succeed that way. What you have to do is to reckon yourselves dead unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's the... the, um, Union with Christ discussion. So how do we do that? Very simply. The best way to kill something is to stop feeding it. You you, want to murder your plants in your house? Just stop watering it. Something that that we sometimes do in our house all the time. There's there's homicide. Goes on in the Newsome household sometimes. Plant homicide. Because here's the deal. If my heart is what it is, then it means that those allegiances have got to be displaced But the best way to displace one allegiance is to bring something more beautiful beside it. This is what Thomas Chalmers, the old Scottish uh, theologian, said in his little essay, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. By the way, that's John Owen over there on the right. That's not Thomas Chalmers. I apologize. Uh, Thomas, John Owen wrote a a book called The, the, The Mortification of Sin, an illustration that belonged earlier on in this particular point, and I forgot it, so bear with me. Um... Thomas Chalmers is not the character there, but you could pretend it was him. I'm sure they all looked alike back then. Um, The expulsive power of a new affection. Here's what Chalmers says. There is the ability of new loves to expel other allegiances in my life. That if I'm looking for real change, I've got to identify, first of all, what it is that looks lovely to me now. Name it, and then unmask it, And then all of a sudden, find something that's more beautiful. This is different. This is a different view of mortification. And John Owen is the one who peddled it. Because he said, look, we only kill something by starving it. And we will only starve it by ceasing to feed it. And we'll only stop feeding it by giving it all of the allegiance stuff that I give to the things that I find beautiful. This is a different way of looking how to change. Next. I don't even know what number we're on. But we're drilling down features of a new you. Now look here, this is a book you got to get. Um, Selected Letters of John Newton. You got to get this edition. There are a couple of letters of John Newton out there, but this is the one from the publisher called The Banner of Truth. You need to remember that publisher as well. We get good books from The Banner of Truth, so read those. This one, you got to have. I think you'll tear through it. Because if we're going to starve one thing, we have to feed another. And so Christians call these feeding troughs the means of grace. That's our definition of it. And they are well known. We hear, from, we hear from Jesus in the reading of his word, the Bible. We continue the conversation with Jesus in the moment-by-moment activity of a prayer life. We connect physically with Jesus by being among his people. Guess what? Coming here this morning is a means of grace. There's something that comes here, even in this particular place. Um, in other words, these aren't much of a mystery. But what's often a mystery is how these disciplines of the Christian life can very easily morph from means of grace (laughs) to the ends of grace. That is, uh, what tends to happen when people begin to get excited, let's say that someone gets a vision of Jesus. They see him being their savior. They see something that they long for. They want him. And so they begin to all of a sudden read their Bibles. Maybe they find new activity in prayer. But all of a sudden, things just change over time. Listen to what John Newton says in one of his... uh, 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 letters. He says, the believer suddenly mistakes the design and the nature of these new desires to pray, which are not given for him to rest in, listen, 
but to encourage him to press forward. And suddenly he begins to think that he is right with God because he has them. You hear what he's saying? He says, in other words, God will oftentimes come whooshing into your life and you'll suddenly really like to pray. You'll want to speak to him. Your heart, as Newton says, is enlarged in prayer. But what happens ere long, he says, is we begin to all of a sudden assume that God likes me because I like to pray. That God is with me because I read my Bible. That's the inertia of the heart, Newton says. And he says this, and he finally hopes to always have them. Then his, his mountain stands strong. Don't you wish we still talked that way? Does your mountain stand strong today? <clears throat> Whatever. But before long, he feels a change. His comforts are withdrawn. He finds he has no heart to pray, no attention in hearing, and indwelling sin revives with fresh strength. And perhaps even Satan returns with a redoubled rage. Then he is at his wit's end. He thinks his hopes were presumptuous and his comforts were mere delusions. He wants to feel something that may give him a warrant to trust in the free promises of Christ. Ooh, did you hear that? <laughs> what happens is, is suddenly when my heart isn't as interested in praying and reading the Bible anymore, we look back on those things before and say, you know what, that was just, that was, that was just a lie. I didn't really believe any of that stuff. I must not have because I don't want it now. And if I don't want it now, then it must be that God has walked away from me. I never, as a matter of fact, I don't think I ever was. I really never was a Christian. I never believed any of this. Isn't that fascinating? But look, the Bible says there's, there's a difference between inferring God's grace and drawing on God's grace. You see, we infer God's grace when we say, I have Jesus' love because of this, 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 and this. There's no greater tendency to think about in your struggle for holiness and your sort of delving into the means of grace than to think that God is going to like you because you do those things. You mistake those as if they are the essence of favor. And it's the very time in which you step off track and get frustrated in your efforts. Rather, the grace of God is something upon which you draw. It's the resource to which you go every time you discover fresh evidences of rebellion inside your own heart. And I don't know, I'm almost 50. It hasn't stopped yet. I don't think it ever stops where you keep finding fresh evidences of rebellion inside the heart. Look, James 2 contains the most famous passage about faith without works being dead. But it's fascinating. The works that he's referring to in James 2 is talking about the works to the poor. It's really, really interesting how often the Bible, when it talks about sanctification rarely ever refers to reading your Bible. <laughs> One of the reasons is, is because it really has only been for the last, oh, I don't know, uh, one-fourth of church history when anyone's even had printed Bibles to read. <laughs> so there's a sense in which, um, you know, don't make that be sort of too uh, uh, packed in on your sort of thinking there. Rather, what the Bible always ends up thinking about when it talks about sanctification is how you feel about the poor and the downtrodden. That's what it's talking about in James chapter 2. You, have, you say you have faith. Very good. But do you have works? Because if you have your works, or if you have your faith without works, that faith is dead. Like if you go to someone and say, be warm and be filled. That's the phrase it uses in James 2. When was the last time you told someone to be warm and be filled? Be warm and be filled. But you don't give them a, clo a cloak to cloak themselves with when they're cold in the winter? Or a meal, you know, so that they could actually have something to eat that day? What good have you done them, James says. In other words, there is something about the Bible and the sanctification God is bringing that will change the way you look at the downtrodden. And if that hasn't changed, then your faith may be dead. Why? Because we get, we get them. We understand who they are. And so therefore, Christians don't actually see broken people in life in the way in which they used to. We see the broken in life and are like, ah. Oh, I know what that's like. How can I help? That's a Christian posture towards even social change, I would argue. It's the difference between inferring and drawing on. All right, let's do the last one here. I got, to, I got time. Good, good, good. Look, the final consideration the Bible's way of helping you change is by thinking about how important your clothes are. Bear with me. I don't mean, of course, whether or not you're attuned to the latest fashions, but have you ever considered the role that your clothes play in life? 
This is kind of interesting. First, we know our clothes are meant to cover us. That is, they cover things that are private. Um, and I'm not talking about private parts. I'm talking about things that I don't want you to see. I would prefer to hide certain parts of this belly button section of my life. And if that gets more interesting with every passing year as well. I want to cover some things, right? It's very interesting that... We'll get to that in just a second. The second thing, though, is our clothes do, is our clothes identify us. This is very interesting uh, thought here. Because as much as we'd like to think that we're above being sort of known by our dress, we all assume a, per, a, per, a persona uh, when we dress as we do. Usually we try to dress like someone whom someone would admire or like to emulate. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to throw this out there. I, got, I lost an argument one time with someone who was talking about why in their religious tradition they wore a clerical collar. And I was like, that is the most condescending thing ever, a clerical collar. Like you're around, like you're Mr. Holy Man. See me, I'm a holy man. And what was fascinating was he said, you don't think that you're wearing a uniform? He goes, every Presbyterian church I've ever been to, you guys dress up, you guys look like, like bankers and lawyers up there. Oh, interesting. And I suddenly realized, you're exactly right. Trying to dress exactly like who we emulate the most, do we not? Now, I couldn't care less whether we wear suits or, or clerical collars or robes uh, for church. It doesn't make any difference to me. I'm just saying, you're going to take on the attributes of what you wear, are you not? We know a doctor when they come into a, to, to a restaurant. They've got their scrubs on. We know sort of a garbage man. He's got sort of his overalls on. They know what a farmer looks like. But the Bible looks and says that, that we are to put on spiritual clothes as well. That is, we are, in Colossians 3, uh, 12 and 14, Paul says, uh, uh, Paul says that basically we are to have put off the old self and are now to put on the new self. Uh, and, and, of course, more specifically in Galatians 3, uh, uh, 27, he says that we have put on Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, simply put, real change in life is something about getting dressed. It's about addressing those spots in my life that, they're shame, that are shameful in me. You see, that's what shame does. It's very interesting that the very first effect of sin that our first parents noticed was that they were naked. Isn't that fascinating? Of all the very first effects that happened to them, they saw that they were naked. And that theme of nakedness is traced throughout the Bible as being the theme of shame. Nakedness was always a place of shamefulness. And so therefore, I choose coverings that are so inadequate, like Adam and Eve reaching for fig leaves, trying to cover, trying to fix sort of the shameful things that they have on the inside of them. But becoming a Christian means that I'm looking to Jesus to cover those shameful places underneath the blood of his cross. I clothe myself in him. And so therefore, I'm also clothing myself in Jesus' identity as well. Jesus didn't just die for my sins on the cross. He died for my whole being, for all of the things that I go to, to think that they define me. And so change means putting an end to defining myself by the world standard and putting on Jesus to be the primary characteristic in life. I love watching sort of uh, people that are interviewed uh, at movie, for, for, that are actors. And I'm oftentimes amazed at what actors can do. But I think that anybody in the, in the acting profession will tell you that there really can be a powerful transformation that takes, on you, takes you over when you get into costume. You know? Just something about when... The, <laughs> um, I'm sure that Johnny Barrett would school us all for all of his Halloween costumes. Like, there's just something that takes you over when you suddenly put on this costume that looks like you're in a cage with a gorilla, you know? You remember this, uh, this picture, what, what, five, six years ago, Johnny? That was so brilliant. Um, suddenly, it's just hilarious, and suddenly you're hilarious. Even if when you're in a suit all day, you're not hilarious. You just are after that. Why? Because our costumes, that they end up helping us come out. Well, what are you dressing in? You know, walking through a clothing store, isn't it perfectly natural to wonder which outfit will make you attractive to others? I had a great conversation this week with someone who has aspirations to be a part of the fashion industry. Now, you may condescend to that and say to yourself, oh, what a, what a vapid, vapid sort of uh, 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 industry to be a part of. I mean, how, 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 how base that really is. But, you know, it very well may be that appealing to someone's desire to be lovely might very well just be a, a memory trace that we were created as human beings to be lovely to someone. I, I think, obviously, women are a little more in touch with this desire than anybody, than, than the men are. 
But that desire to be alluring, that desire to be the one who catches someone's eye, isn't that powerful? And it very well might be that that is something that actually is God-given, that it's a desire given to us by God to be lovely, which is why when he begins to speak of us in that day, you know what the primary description and revelation is of you in, the, in heaven? Is you will be clothed in perfectly white robes that one day at last to be lovely, both inside and out. <laughs> you know, she's, she's, got a, she's pretty on the inside, right? Oh, inside and out, that what we all long for. And when that happens, suddenly we begin to dress and change. My hope and my joy and my glory changes when I see how he has dressed me. Change and dressing. All right, so I left four minutes for questions. I know that was like water from a fire hydrant. I realize that. Felt like that to me as well, but yes, there we go. Any questions or thoughts or helpful addendums? Sorry, I've just been dry as a bone this morning. That's right. And that battle never stops. I mean, th th this is the thing that the Bible says. Uh, it, 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 let's say Philippians 2, uh, 13 and 14, 11 and 12, 12 and 13, where Paul says, look, here's what I want you to do with this information. He just got, in talk, he just got finished talking about how Jesus served us in his, in his submission to, uh, to um, uh, God and what he did on the cross. And then he says, so look, now what I want you to do is I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, there's effort to be extended in the Christian life. And it's not only effort, but it's effort that is done with fear and trembling, with great awe, extraordinary effort. But then the very next verse he says, for it is God who works both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. I used to love to read this, these verses to students because they would look at it and be like, uh, never seen two verses contradict themselves so close together. Who's working? Is it that I work or is it that God works? And of course, you had the answer of saying, it's both. Now, it's not both in the sense of the way in which we oftentimes think of it, like me and Jesus, arm in arm, walking through life together. That's not what it means. That is, or nor is it like he does half and I do. You know, Jesus will meet you halfway. I've heard preachers say that. I love to turn on like the country stations when I'm driving around at night and find some country preacher that's preaching. I hear this all the time. Jesus is going to meet you halfway, but you got to, you, you got to extend some effort. And I'm going to be like, mm, I don't think that's what Philippians 2 is talking about. Because notice the connector word. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not and, not but, but for or because. That is, I, it's not I work and God works. It's not I work but God works. It's I work because he is working. That is, when I begin to live in the light of his work, then my work suddenly takes on real meaning and actually has real effectiveness. I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, but that led to an interesting point. <laughs> Good point. Yes, yes, Susan. Yeah, the question was, let's say that I find myself helping someone or that I'm desperate for change myself. What does that mean this afternoon? <clears throat> I'll tell you where I was going this morning with it. What I wanted this morning to see change, what, when we think about how we change, um, is to change what I think my target is. Because it's very easy to simply get preoccupied with the behavior. I was speaking with a therapist one time who specializes in dealing with people with sex addiction. That is, addictions to pornography, addictions to illicit relationships, whatever else. And I asked him, I said, look, what, is, what do you consider in the therapeutic room job one for someone who comes to you completely awash in unredeemable sexual sin? And he, and he, he, and he, did, he didn't stop and be like, ooh, that's a tough one. He never he didn't hesitate for a second. He goes, oh, that's easy. I have to convince them that that thing in their life is not the most interesting thing about them. Isn't this fascinating? He said, because what happens, especially with sexual sin, is it comes with such a boatload of shame with it that it sets up residency in the center of the life and suddenly everything that is done in life is done in reference to that thing. And he said, I have to dethrone that. And sometimes it looks like to people 
that I'm actually downplaying and minimizing what they're doing. And I think this is fascinating. He says, but I'm doing just the opposite. I'm trying to actually set it aside so it's not so gargantuan in the life. I find that fascinating. Because so oftentimes, when we see problems in the lives of others, and we wish those problems would change, we go strictly into behavior modification, and we start to pound the issue. And you know what we do? We're making it worse. Because all we're doing is causing that thing to become larger and larger and larger in the life. And what Jesus is saying is, if you hold me up uh, before men, I will draw all men to myself. That's different to me. If somebody this afternoon got that one little notion, I think it'd be a great first step. Let me pray for us. We're out of time. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, then help us to change. Um, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We see you, but we don't see you. We have known you, but we don't know you. All of those things are true, even in this moment right here. But we may not like where we are. We may not like who we've become. But we still want to see you. We want to know that the same gospel that saved us is the same gospel that's going to transform us. We want to believe that we didn't get saved by one idea, but then move on to the more advanced stuff. But that the gospel still continues to be true. Lord Jesus, would you help us this morning remember that, to relish it, to sort of... uh, swim in it, to get a taste of it, to feed upon it, to clothe ourselves in it. All these wonderful metaphors, Father, would you, would you bring those to life this morning as we worship? And in so doing, help us be different. We ask it all in Jesus' name.